you. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is Matthew 13, 44 through 58. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace uh, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? When then did this man get all these things? And they, looked, and they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. All right. Um, cool. So, yeah, Tommy is uh, off in seminary right now, and I'm uh, pretty jealous because he's actually with... Um, a scholar named Scott McKnight, and so I'm a little bit jealous with rage because it's a great guy, and I, I get to be here, but I'm glad to be here, actually, because I love Watermark, and I love the fact that we get to uh, actually kind of delve into the Bible in a deeper way um, than some churches that I've, I've gotten to teach at, so I love this community. My, my issue, though, is that I personally have been kind of crazy busy so I, the, I'm, a, I'm an assistant professor at Southeastern University of Theology, and so school is starting back up this week. I've already gotten emails from students telling me that they can't do work, and it's literally their class starts Thursday. So I don't know how I'm getting these emails already, but they're prepping to tell me that they can't do their work. So it's okay. All that to say, it's been busy. And then uh, I just got a puppy, a little, a little German shepherd puppy. Yeah, I know. Ah, uh, right? Uh, it's great. Um, and then I'm also buying a house in this moment. So it's just like all this stuff is kind of coming together. All that to say, if the sermon sucks, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> that's just like my pre, my kind of, yeah. We'll just go from there. Um, okay, so, so this passage is quite a long passage. And at first it can seem pretty disconnected. We can have these like moments of these parables uh, that are happening that seem kind of out of place and odd and what's happening with them can be uh, oftentimes be torn apart. So you might have heard sermons on these parables in which you would hear uh, a pastor maybe pick out one of the parables and then talk about it, or maybe two of the parables and talk about them. But what I'm going to try to do today is show you that these, these parables come, in, uh, come to us through Jesus' teaching in a very particular order and a very particular way. Matthew, in writing to his community, uh, the Matthean community needs to hear something from Jesus through these parables all the way through this kind of odd narrative where Jesus goes home. And we see something strange happening. So I want to kind of show how it's going to be broken out in three sections. Um, the first three sections are going to be these parables that we just 
we just heard about. So we have the parable of the treasure, we have the parable of the pearl, and then we have the parable of fishing. The next section is what we would call a wisdom parable. Now, wisdom parables in that time and age were going to be a bit more cryptic. Like, if you already thought Jesus was cryptic with some of his parables, he gets even more cryptic with the wisdom parable. And he says something that is meant to be mulled over, something that's meant to be thought and chewed on for a long time. Uh, And we'll give it like five minutes today. Great, right? Um, And he talks about this in terms of the treasure new and old. And then we're going to have the exemplary narrative where Jesus goes home to his hometown and he's going to really give this kind of picture about faith and response. What does it look like when we talk about having faith and how do we respond to that faith? Well, so we're just going to kind of dive right in today uh, and we're going to jump right into uh, the first parable. And the first parable says this, the kingdom of heaven is like uh, treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Now, this is an interesting passage because me, when I was like 12, when I heard this passage, I think I just had pictures of either pirates with treasure maps looking for treasure or like old people with uh, metal detectors on the beach. Like those are my two pictures that are going on in my head here. But that's not the picture that Jesus is painting for them, and we're going to discuss that picture. But the first thing we need to recognize is that this word treasure that's being used is this word here in Greek, uh, and it's the sauros. And this word treasure it actually kind of holds a, a large range of meaning. And we'd actually, in uh, biblical studies, we call this, or, or even just in language studies, we call this the word's lexical range. And so when you try to translate this word from Greek into English, you'll see all these different kind of possibilities of translation. And, and for the most part, it actually kind of deals with some kind of store uh, place for treasure, uh, like a storehouse or a repository, or just some kind of place, a casket, a coffer, or other receptacle. So really what he's saying in this kind of moment is that there is someone who's out working a field, and they find this uh, kind of storehouse. They find this treasure, uh, buried treasure, and... Uh, to us, that doesn't really make any sense. I mean, I don't know how many of you have ever been, like, out doing yard work and being like, aha, treasure, this is great. Like, gold, I wish, right? That would be the best. That would be the best day. But if we think back, Tommy has already shown this picture. If we think back to where they were, the, when they were hearing these parables, they were at this place called the Sower's Cove, and this is the place that the people were listening to the parables around a farming community, so farmers were here, they were, uh, they were sitting down, they were actually seeing people around them farm, and so what they would have understood was that the person who found this treasure was probably, whoa, are we okay here? Cool. Um, the person who found this treasure is probably working the field. He's probably a plowman. He's probably actually getting the field ready to be, uh, to be sown. And so he's getting it ready, and in the process of getting it ready, he actually finds some kind of treasure, and this actually still happens today, uh, unfortunately not here too much, but in the Middle East it actually happens quite a bit, and we find things like this very often, where, where there'll be people who are doing construction work, or they're prepping land for uh, new buildings, and along the way, they undig these kind of uh, clay pots full of coins and random, uh, random treasures, Because what would happen in the first century is that uh, you wouldn't necessarily trust the bank. They had banks, but a lot of people didn't use the banks uh, because, let's say, you're a Roman soldier 
in the first century, you're told you're going to go off to war, you wouldn't put your money in the bank because you're probably going to be off to war somewhere up to, upwards to seven years. And there's probably the best chance that you're not going to make it home. Uh, and so what happens is they wouldn't take it to the bank because they don't know what's going on with it. They would actually just bury it. Bury, bury this treasure. Sorry for the mic, everybody. I don't know what's happening. Uh, they're going to bury this treasure, and then when they come home from war, they would actually unbury it, and then they would have their money ready to go. But very often what would happen is the person would die, and their treasure would be left in the field. And so Jesus is painting this picture of these sowers who are going out into the field, and as they're, so, as they're getting ready to, as they're plowing the field, getting it ready to sow, they come across these treasures. And so while it makes sense to them in their time, oftentimes it doesn't make sense to us. But what happens here is there's kind of like a threefold message wrapped up into this with Jesus. He's trying to point out three specific things about the kingdom of heaven. This section of Matthew talks a lot about what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's not like this microphone. The kingdom of heaven is like the kingdom of heaven is like. And so he wants to kind of paint like three pictures, I think, of what's happening within the kingdom of heaven. What is it actually going to be like? Well, the first thing that we actually find is that the person who is uh, plowing this field finds it accidentally. The plowman is not going out into the field and then all of a sudden, like going out there with the specific purpose of finding these, uh, finding this treasure. So he, he goes onto the field and he finds, uh, he finds this treasure, but it's purely by accident. He's not looking for it. The kingdom of heaven, then, in Jesus' mind, in this one way, is like an accidental find. It comes in surprising ways. Sometimes we have this kind of picture of the kingdom of heaven that, aha, I know what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like. I know where I'm going to find it. I know what it's going to be. I'm going to go out and get it. But in this picture, Jesus kind of like changes the script a bit, and he goes, no, no, the kingdom of heaven is like someone who finds it by accident. But then something interesting happens, because in the Jewish law of the time... Uh, this would be an ethically like questionable thing. Because what a plowman was supposed to do if they were to find something like this in the field is they were supposed to go tell the owner of the field. Because clearly he doesn't own it, right? Jesus kind of finishes the parable with he sells everything he has and he goes and he buys the field. So what he should have done, according to kind of like Jewish custom, is that he should have told the owner of the field, look, I found this treasure. This treasure now belongs to you. But he doesn't do it. Instead, what the text tells us is that he actually buries it again and with, um, and in his joy goes out and sells everything he has and he buys the field so he can have the treasure. And so the third thing that Jesus is kind of pointing out here is that his response when he finds the kingdom is a very complete response. It, it takes all of who this plowman is to actually obtain the kingdom of heaven. And so he paints this picture of sometimes the kingdom comes in very surprising ways. Sometimes it doesn't necessarily look like the way that we want it to look. But what matters most is our response to the kingdom. Are we going to actually be a part of this kingdom? Are we going to take everything that we have and be a part of the kingdom? Or are we going to kind of give kind of partial credit? Are we going to just steal it? One thing that the plowman could have done is he could have stolen the treasure. But he doesn't, right? He gives away everything he can. He sells all he can and he goes to it. So then, so then Jesus often does this thing, and there's actually kind of like a lot of uh, proof within the kind of biblical studies that show that Jesus would often tell similar parables in a little bit different way to actually paint this like very robust picture. 
And so then he tells this next parable, and he goes, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. For a lot of of us, these two parables can sound like almost exactly the same. Well, yeah, Jesus, you already told us this. But if we kind of like look deeper and we take a step back, we'll actually find it. But the thing that I try to do is I try to be like Tommy and draw, but I'm really terrible at drawing. So this is the best representation I can give you of a pearl. Surprise. Uh, I love, I love drawing, clearly. Um, no, so, so we have this like picture of a pearl, and the pearl is very interesting within the first century because the pearl is actually the most prized possession of the first century. Like today's, in today's uh, context, we might think like of diamonds, but they didn't think of diamonds as kind of worth the same as a pearl. The pearl was the most important uh, kind of status symbol or wealth symbol that you could have within the first century context. And so we get this picture of this merchant who's doing what he's supposed to do. Like, I mean, merchant in the first century is going to be very similar to, uh, I, I use the analogy in the first service of like uh, American Pickers. Does anyone watch that show? Right, like you go and you like find like the stuff that no one else cares about and you buy it really cheap and then you sell it for a lot more money. Like, I just don't know how that works. I would just be very mad if I was the person who bought it uh, for a lot more money. I'd be like, wait a second, you paid 10 bucks for this. Why is it $200 now? Um, but this is what the merchant does, right? So the merchant is going to actually go and he's looking, he's intentionally looking. This is how it's different than the first parable is he's intentionally looking for this pearl, where in our first parable, he's, he's found the kingdom of heaven by accident. And in the second parable, he's looking for the kingdom of heaven purposefully. And Jesus is painting this robust picture, and he might be saying to us in some ways, and he's saying to the community there, it doesn't necessarily look like what you think it's going to look like. The people of the kingdom of heaven, they're going to be a little bit different than what you might imagine And then to parallel, instead of it being kind of ethically questionable, Jesus uses a very kind of like ethically proper uh, story. He does exactly what he's supposed to do. He goes and he sells everything and he buys it. He doesn't kind of bury it again. He doesn't try to like rip the guy off. He's happy to go ahead and sell everything he has to completely respond to finding the kingdom of heaven given to us in this picture of the pearl. And so we have these kind of two distinct stories that often look the same, but they're quite different. Painting robust picture of the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes the kingdom comes in surprising ways, and sometimes it comes through intentional searching. But both of them have kind of the same end goal in that there's a complete response of the individual to the kingdom. They both kind of follow through the same way. Let's sell everything we have, and let's be a part, take the kingdom, buy the kingdom. But then we get uh, this story, and again, it, it connects well, but it's very particular to the Matthean community. So Matthew is writing this gospel in his community, and his community is a very interesting one because it's primarily made up of Jews, but there's also kind of like starting to be the inclusion of the Gentiles into the community. And you'll notice in your reading of the New Testament, you might find this over and over and over again. There's this struggle between the kind of Christian community of who's allowed in and who isn't. And, and in kind of first century context, 
we see a lot of times that the Jews saw themselves as being the chosen people of God, and so they were a part of the community regardless. They were the community. Everyone else, what they would designate as Gentiles, would have to be uh, proselytized into being Jews. So they would have to do things like go get baptized, uh, be circumcised, or go do their uh, ritual sacrifices at the temple, which is hard for a Gentile because the Gentile wasn't even allowed into the uh, inner courts of the temple to where they really did the sacrifices. They kind of had to create like an outer place for Gentiles to go. And so they're struggling with where do we as the community, where do we as the people of God, as Jews, where do we kind of like fit in or where do the Gentiles fit in with us? How do we do this? And so then Jesus tells the story about the kingdom again. And you see, this is the second time he's done this in this kind of like trio. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like. Let me paint a picture for you of what the kingdom's going to be like, and it's going to surprise you. And so as we go through this, it says, uh, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is, how the, uh, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. One of the first things I think that we have to kind of grasp in order to understand this passage is what he means by kind of this collection of fish and, and using a net. Uh, because a lot of times we'll have this like picture of just someone going out and like casting a net. And that's not really what Jesus was kind of using. He was giving the example of what we would call a dragnet. So as I was looking for a picture for a dragnet, I came across this, and it was just too good to share. Um, I don't even understand what what is happening here. Uh, It's just proof that Christians are weird. I love, like, the the guy who's, like, apparently getting thrown into the water, has this weird, like, demon-looking face thing going on. Jesus over on the side, like, what the heck? Um... (laughs) And these people are just, apparently they hate being caught by Jesus' net, so I don't know. But here's the real picture of what a dragnet looks like. Much, much different, right? And so what a dragnet is, if, if anyone is like an expert in first century uh, fishing practices, please come talk to me and help me out a little bit more. But uh, this is what a, a, a dragnet would be. You would take a boat, and you have this very long net, And so with one end of the net, you would take your boat and you would go out and make this large kind of circle, a semicircle around the shore. And as you would go, you'd be dropping this net. And on one end of the net, there was a heavy weight. And on the other end, there was kind of like a buoy or something to kind of hold the net up. And so it kind of create this barrier. And you would just take your boat around in a semicircle from shore to shore. And then you'd have people on the shore who would start to actually drag the net back in. And so this kind of fishing practice, you, you couldn't necessarily control what kind of things you were bringing in with your net. You were just kind of going out to get anything. And so in our, in our parable here, Jesus kind of starts this with, look, the kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown down into a lake and caught all kinds of fish. Uh, when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Now, the interesting thing about this kind of all kinds of fish thing is Jesus doesn't actually say all kinds of fish. He says this phrase in Greek, um, pantos genos synagogusi. And what this actually, we translate it and we say caught all kinds of fish. Because when we're translating from Greek to English, it doesn't kind of match perfectly. 
So we're trying to kind of make context fit the story. And so in our translations, oftentimes it'll say all kinds of fish. But what it literally says, if we were to translate it word for word, says every kind gathering together. The first picture that Jesus is painting for, for the kind of like the people on the shore who are listening to this and Matthew is kind of teaching to his community is that this kingdom of God is no respecter of persons. Every kind. Every kind of person is going to be part of this kingdom. It's going to be surprising, and it's going to be kind of strange. And he follows this up. If you look down farther, he follows this up with a kind of like mixed metaphor. In verse 49, it says, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. Any, any Jew, especially where Jesus is teaching, where the primary audience when Jesus first would say the parable would have been primarily Jewish. And they would have said, you don't separate fish based on if they're wicked or righteous. Like, yeah, this fish kind of gave some of his food to that homeless fish. And this fish did something bad. So we're going to separate. No, that wouldn't make any sense, right? Instead... Uh, so what they would have expected in the parable is to hear Jesus say, and the clean and unclean were separated. And for Jews, that was very kind of an easy picture because they did have clean and unclean fish. Clean fish uh, were primarily the fish um, in the Sea of Galilee that they were kind of near that were uh, scaled fish. So they could only keep fish that had scales on them. If they didn't have scales, they were considered unclean. And so what a Jewish fisherman would do, he'd do one of two things. He would, take, he would take the clean fish, and in the same way he'd put the clean fish in the basket, but he wouldn't burn the unclean fish. That doesn't kind of make sense for a Jewish fisherman. What they would do is they'd do one of two things. If the fish was bad for the ecosystem of, of the lake, they would bury it. If it was good for the ecosystem of the lake, and you needed it to kind of make sure that you're doing well in fishing and that you're promoting a good, healthy uh, kind of fishery, you would put him back. And so Jesus is kind of like changing the story, changing things up the way they would have understood it. So instead of clean and unclean, he uses wicked and righteous as a picture of what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like. Now, I'm not going to get into uh, throwing them into the blazing furnace. Tommy spoke at his reasoning series about kind of hell and the pictures of hell and these words and phrases that are used about it. And I know that's going to be available in a podcast soon. So I'm going to kind of like leave that here to say, if that's interesting to you, like I'm going to let you wait for that one. But what's really interesting in this is that Jesus is speaking to this community and saying, the kingdom of heaven is going to include people that you're not going to be used to. You might think the kingdom, you might think that because you're a Jew, you're part of the kingdom of God, but that's not how this whole thing works. The kingdom of God is more diverse than that. The kingdom of God is more far-reaching than that. It's like a net that reaches everything. And it's not based on if you are clean or unclean. It's based on if you're wicked or righteous. Um, and, and, and this was like a, this was a deep message for the, for the Matthean community. The community that Matthew is writing to is struggling with this idea of what do we do with the Gentiles? Are they a part of the kingdom of God or not? And so they were being forced to re-understand even their own identity just because I'm a Jew doesn't mean I'm a part of the kingdom. Just because they're a Gentile doesn't mean that they're not a part of the kingdom. Augustine, who comes uh, a few hundred years later, and he's this theologian, as he's reflecting on this passage, Augustine said of the church, how many sheep are without and how many wolves are within? 
Like how many people have we as the church excluded from the kingdom of God that in reality are part of the kingdom of God? And how many people within our churches are not a part of the kingdom of God, but we include them in? This was the call to the Matthean community. It's not based on the standards that they were, they were thinking they were going to be based on, clean, unclean, Jew or Gentile. Jesus is saying, if we think back to the last two parables, the people who are part of the kingdom of heaven are the people who completely respond to the kingdom. Whether they find it by accident or they find it on purpose, it's those who respond completely are those who are part of the kingdom. And then we get to the wisdom parable. And the wisdom parable kind of just seems like this off, kind of out of nowhere thing Jesus says. And so we're going to kind of like look at it real quick and then move on to the most important part, which is the next one, the next narrative. But it says, have you understood all these things, Jesus asked? Yes, they replied. He said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. And so what does he mean, anyone who has heard these things and understand them, they're like a teacher of the law? Well, the first thing we have to recognize is what is a teacher of the law? The teacher of the law was called a scribe. And the scribe, their original job was uh, kind of more in even more ancient times, especially kind of around the time of the Old Testament text. Their job was to actually take the Torah and copy the Torah um, onto new scrolls therefore kind of keeping more scrolls available of the Torah. And that was kind of their primary job. They were just kind of like copyists. As we get to Jesus' day and age, the the scribes had started doing something different. Rather than just copying down the Torah, they started copying down the Torah and started kind of giving interpretations of it. This is what it says in the Old Testament, and here's what it means, right? Here's, Here's what it says, and here's what it means. And in fact, the word, the same word for scribe and the thing that we translate for teacher of the law is also the word that's often used for uh, kind of like a lawyer because they'd be the final say in the matter. If two people were debating on a text, the scribe would say, that's the right interpretation. Now, a lot of the scribes disagreed, so we never really got anything clear, right? So everyone's just disagreeing with everybody, but they were supposed to be the ones to do it. Um, But the interesting thing here as well is that these treasures, what are these treasures new and old? So if the scribes are supposed to be the kind of people who are taking the treasure from the storeroom and giving them back to the people, it's important to recognize what the treasure are. The funny thing is, the storeroom here is the same word for treasure we found in the parable um, of the plowman finding the treasure in the field. It's the same Greek word. Jesus is painting this picture that the kingdom of heaven is the treasure, Anyone who finds the kingdom of heaven, it's their responsibility to share that kingdom of heaven. And so what is this new and old, though, that he's saying? What are the treasures that are new as well as old? Well, for Jesus and for many biblical scholars, there's a lot of kind of questioning on what does Jesus mean by this, the treasures new as well as old. And many biblical scholars actually would say that what happens here is the old treasures are the ideas that we find kind of within these texts, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Old Testament law and teaching. But the new treasure is Jesus' teaching of those old things. The new treasure is the way that Jesus is reshaping and reframing the kingdom of heaven. We're not forgetting the Old Testament, but we're also recognizing that it doesn't look 
like the way that Jesus thinks it should look. He's going to reinterpret it. And so in so many ways, we see this in Matthew 5, 17. So back before we get here, about eight chapters earlier, Jesus says something like this. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Matthew 5, Jesus does this kind of sermon on the mount. And if you haven't heard the podcast or you weren't here when uh, Tommy spoke in them, I would kind of encourage you to go listen to him because there's like a lot of times that Jesus takes an Old Testament passage and he, and he kind of like gives it new life. For instance, one of the uh, passages in the, in the Sermon on the Mount says something like, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you to turn the other cheek. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was found in the Old Testament. It was in the law. It was a way in which they kind of tried to help create a more just society. You killed my sheep, I kill yours, right? Like it's kind of this weird way where before that law, people thought that revenge should be done sevenfold. You killed my sheep, I kill your sheep and all your family. Like real happy stuff, right? Um, So during the Torah, they're like, no, 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 this is terrible. Everyone's killing like seven more of everything. So no, no, just an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. If you lose his axe, you have to give him your axe. Like, and then we're done. But Jesus actually changes that, and he goes, no, no, you've heard it said this way, but I'm going to tell you this is what the kingdom really looks like. Turn the other cheek. So when Jesus is saying this parable in Matthew 13, he's kind of starting off this, like, new kind of movement. He's saying, if you've heard this and if you've understand this, then what you need to do as people is that you need to take that kingdom, the treasure of the kingdom, and you need to show those treasures new and old to more people. It's like the great, what we would call in that kind of the Christian tradition, often the great commission, like go out into all the world and make disciples. It's kind of like a a prototype great commission. Take these teachings of the kingdom of heaven and go share them. This is what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. The, The way that Tommy kind of explained it even in the past few weeks is that they were expecting the kingdom of heaven to be an actual kingdom. This is Israel. We're going to have a king. We're going to overthrow Rome and we're going to be free. But through all these parables in Matthew 13, Jesus is like, that's not what the kingdom is going to be like. It's going to be like this. The kingdom is without borders. The kingdom are those who actually follow these teachings. The kingdom are those who actually give a complete response to God. It's not an earthly kingdom. And so then we get an example. And for, for a lot of times we can like see this passage and it becomes very kind of, it comes out of the blue Jesus goes home, and all of a sudden we get this kind of weird picture. There's been a lot of debate in the church about especially this last uh, verse, and he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Like, in my tradition, kind of, I grew up Pentecostal. I mean, I'm still in Pentecostal, but I grew up in, like, this, like, very Pentecostal charismatic churches, and I'd heard too many people say over and over again, like, like, if you're not healed, it's because you didn't have enough faith. See? This is what it says in the Bible, but that's not what's happening here. And so we're, we're going to kind of go through it. So Jesus goes home to Nazareth, and if you don't know anything about kind of uh, Nazareth or the time, Nazareth is a pretty small place. It's not a very big land area. I mean, I tell my students when I'm at Southeastern, it's about the size of Southeastern's campus. It's pretty small. Uh, the, the max number I've ever heard in kind of estimations for how many people lived in Nazareth was 3,000. But that's kind of been defunct now, and most scholars hold to Nazareth being somewhere between 150 at the low end to 500 at the most. 
And that would be really tough because they're basically all Jesus' family. So like, if you expect that you can't keep a secret from your family, try living with 500 of your relatives. Uh, everything gets everywhere. In fact, this makes a lot of sense. I didn't even share this in the first um, service, so you guys get an extra piece. You're welcome. Uh, when Jesus is, is going with his family to Jerusalem to go uh, during the time of Passover, I believe, uh, when he's there with his family, his family leaves and they accidentally leave Jesus behind. And everyone's like, wow, Mary was a terrible mom. And Joseph was an absent father. Like, what the heck? How could they leave Jesus? It's because they would actually have gone with all of the people of Nazareth, all their family. So they would have expected someone in the family just had Jesus because the whole town was the family, right? So Nazareth is this really small place and I lost connection. So I might need someone in the back. Um, so if you can click on the next slide, thank you. The word down here is apostia. So Jesus goes home. He goes to his own family. His family recognizes him, as you can see in verse, uh, where are we at? Verse 54, it says, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? They see Jesus and they go, wow, he is uh, smart. He's teaching things in ways that no one has ever taught before. And he's doing miracles. And yet when he gets there, He's explaining these things to his own family, and his own family reject him. His own family say, that's not what the kingdom is. And so when we get down to this last verse, it says, and he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. And this word is apostia. It comes from the the Greek word for faith, which is pistis. And some of your translations might actually say belief. And it might say something like, and he did not do many miracles there because of their lack, uh, because of their unbelief. But it's very particular because Jesus is now showing an example of his parables. And unfortunately, it's a bit of a negative example. Those who are part of the kingdom, you can't be a part of the kingdom just because of the family. Those who are part of the kingdom are those who have complete response. His own family showed a lack of faith. They showed uh, what some people would say is unbelief, um, but I would say it's just this lack of faith. And and our new kind of research and understanding of what does this pistis word, what does this faith word mean in the first century, it actually looks a lot closer to allegiance than it does faith or belief. Which makes a lot of sense when you think about the, the, the metaphors over and over and over again. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven. Are you allegiant to this kingdom and to God or are you allegiant to to your own kingdom and yourself? Are you allegiant to the new kingdom of heaven or are you allegiant to this old picture of the kingdom of Israel? And so we get this picture here of uh, apostia where basically Jesus is saying like, you can't be a part of the kingdom just because you're my family. You can't be a part of the, the kingdom just because you're a Jew. You can't be a part of the kingdom just because you grew up in the church. Like, that's not how this whole thing works. So we have this kind of picture after picture. What is required of us as people? It's this complete response. Now, Tommy, when he talked about this passage in Matthew, when Jesus was saying what this was like, he says, my, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. They can be scary. It's a huge picture. But what Jesus is asking here for in all these parables and kind of this ending result is 
do you have allegiance to me, to God, to the kingdom? Are you trying to enact this kingdom the way that I'm saying it, or are you enacting the kingdom the way that you want it to be? And guess what? It might be surprising. It might look different than what you expected. It might include people that you've excluded. In fact, some people who are part of the kingdom may not act, or like they appear to be part of the kingdom, may not actually be part of the kingdom because they're not doing this. They're not completely responding. And so if we can go to the next slide, and if you just kind of like click through them, you'll see how these kind of three main sections kind of all tie together. And the three parables we get, the, what is the appropriate response to the kingdom? And, and uh, sorry, the first two parables, what is the appropriate response to the kingdom? And our second parable, what is the reward for that appropriate, uh, appropriate proper response? And even reward, I just want to say, what is, what is it like to be in that proper kingdom? And then in our wisdom parable, Jesus is encouraging people, teach this new thing. This is the new way of the kingdom. This is who we're supposed to be. And then finally, we get this kind of like almost negative example of this is not what it looks like. Even Jesus' own family are called uh, having a lack of faith. The very thing that would include them part of the kingdom. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take communion. And communion is like a very important symbol within the, the Christian tradition because what it actually kind of designates is that the teachings of Jesus are going to be the way in which I live my life. When Jesus uh, is talking to his disciples about communion, the night that he's betrayed and then he goes through this kind of terrible suffering before he leads uh, to go die on the cross, he literally says these kind of like enigmatic things. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And those who partake in communion are those who partake in the message, in the teaching, in the kingdom of heaven. And so as we're going to take communion together, so the communion servers uh, can come up and get prepared, it's something to think about, but not just personally. And, and Tommy talked about this a couple weeks ago too. These passages are not about me as an individual as much as they are as about us as the community. The kingdom of heaven is, is us. The kingdom of heaven is this community. The kingdom of heaven is those of us who are taking the teaching of Jesus, understanding them and enacting them and teaching others of this kingdom. And this symbol that we take together of communion is a symbol of saying, yes, this is for me. Yes, uh, I want to be a part of this kingdom, but also I agree to be a part of this community together to enact the kingdom. And so I, I want us to think about that as we take communion today, to kind of contemplate for a moment, to pray over for a moment and think about, are we really trying to enact the kingdom of heaven or are we often trying to enact our own kingdom? Because the complete response is the one who sells everything and buys the field or sells everything and buys the pearl, not just someone who thinks they're okay because they're part of the family. Does that make sense? It's a weird thing I ask my students all the time and I know they hate it. Like, does that make sense? And they're like, yes, right? Um, so let's pray, and then I want us to, again, contemplate and take that time to think about what that looks like for you and your community together uh, here. God, we thank you. Uh, we thank you that sometimes the message of the Bible can, can be challenging and can be hard. But we also thank you that your burden is easy and that your yoke is light and that we can be as people in your kingdom deeply searching after you and your teaching and enacting that kingdom in the way that we can with our community and those around us. We thank you for these times that we get to know and, and deeper kind of reflect on you and be in relationship with you better. We thank you for all these things and you're my prayer.